Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. Featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of welcoming special guest, Professor Dr. Anthony Weems to the show from Western Carolina University. The purpose of today's episode is to discuss a recent article that appeared in the Journal of Sports Management. It's entitled, Who Are We Honoring? Extending the Ebony and Ivy Discussion to Include Sports Facilities. And it was co-authored by Professor Weems, Dr. Robert Turek of Ball State University, Nicholas Swim, professor from the University of Louisville, Trevor Bopp, professor from the University of Florida, and John M. Singer, professor from Texas A&M University. This particular article looked at the issue of whether or not university officials should remove the names of individuals with racist past from campus buildings and structures that bear their namesake. And the purpose of this particular study was to analyze basketball and football facilities at Division I football subdivision institutions to explore the racialized history of the people whom these facilities are named after. The study itself identified 18 facilities that were named after athletic administrators, coaches, and philanthropists engaged in racist activities or harbored racist views. I'm pleased to have Professor Reins come on the show to discuss this topic today in light of the current events that are going on in our society. And with that, it's with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Weems to the show. Dr. Weems, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I came across your article a couple of weeks ago, and it really is poignant in terms of understanding the context of what we're looking at when we deal with our sports facilities across the country. And one of the things I want to ask you to start with is, what motivated you and your colleagues to come up with this particular article, Who Are We Honoring, to discuss 
your analysis and your review of the 18 sporting facilities that you determine have namesake of individuals with racist backgrounds or harbored racist views. Right, right. Um, well, I, I do anti-racist work in general, so this is uh, certainly a career for me, I guess. Um, but it really started when my partner and my co-author, um, Robert Turek, uh, he was taking a class in his doctoral program at the University of Florida, and he was taking a class on critical race theory. Uh, in this particular class, he read the book Ebony and Ivy from, from Craig Wilder, and that book talks about, you know, this issue on college campuses of statues and buildings named after uh, slaveholders, people from the Confederacy, et cetera, especially in the Ivy League. Um, so he read that, and then he also read an article written by Ibram X. Kendi, who at the time was at the University of Florida, talking about how he parked uh, his vehicle at the Stephen O'Connell Center there, which is the basketball stadium. Um, and Stephen O'Connell uh, had, he was a former university president there who had, uh, he, he was staunchly against integrating the law school there, um, so much so that eventually some of his actions led to a mass exodus uh, from the University of Florida, what is known as, um, I believe, Black Friday. Uh, so, you know, he, he got really interested in this topic, um, and him and I had connected at a conference before, um, so we each kind of knew each other well, we, we connected well, um, he knew what my strengths were, and I knew what his were, so he reached out to me because he wanted to look to see if there were other sport facilities named after people like this. Because this is a, a pretty big task. Uh, you know, there are, at the Division One level, 119 uh, programs across the country. So we're talking about looking at a lot of facilities, especially when you open it up to more than one sport, um, as we did with football and, and men's basketball. You know, he had reached out to me, and immediately I was hooked. Um, so I said, yes, this is, this is absolutely a topic that I want to labor for. And we're not talking about it uh, in our field, in the field of sport management. We're not talking about it in the broader context of this discussion of you know, facilities named after men with racist past. And we're in a unique, uh, a unique kind of structure, especially in college athletics, where revenue producing sports largely depend on the labor of young black men. So uh, as soon as Robert came to me with this topic, I said, absolutely, I, I, this, this needs to be uh, discussed. This needs to be a part of the conversation. And that was back in 2015 or 2016 when he first approached me. Uh, and that's really when the research began. So it was a very, very long process that extended, you know, beyond our doctoral programs. And now we're both assistant professors. So it, it, it certainly uh, took us a while to complete this study. Um, but that's kind of how, how I got into this particular project. You know, that's a great point, because I know when we talked previously before we did this episode, I looked at this, and that's how I found you. I was Googling issues on this topic. Something, I don't know, motivated me to look up this issue, and I found your article. And I was thinking to myself, wow, what a great, timely article. And then you and I talked about it. And this is actually something that happened several years ago where you started this. And right. the study itself, I mean, it takes a lot to, to develop this kind of research. And 
I, I know you had to do a pretty extensive review of the literature and everything else. One of the questions I'll ask you the follow-up is when you guys did this research with your colleagues, was one of the aspects of it trying to understand, I know you have an entry in your article you talk about trying to understand the way that this would impact African-Americans. And I, I take that one step further. And as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking about going into a sporting facility. And let's say I'm an athlete, an African-American athlete walking into a facility for four years as a collegiate athlete that you know that that facility is named after someone like Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is a, a Confederate general, not, and you're walking into that building all the time. How, do you, how can you even begin to understand the framework upon which what, what goes through an African-American athlete's mind or a student dealing with this kind of issue on a daily basis? Right. I mean, that, that's really the big question here. A lot of this comes down to the the miseducation, if you will, of these student athletes. You know, we're, we're under the, the pretense that we're bringing these athletes in for, for school first. We have that whole term, you know, the student athlete, uh, which was explicitly created to um, essentially keep athletes as, as not, not being a paid labor force uh, and really be an exploitable labor force. Um, so that's kind of the whole reason why this term was even created. But we kind of operate under the guise of holistic development and all of the other myths that we tell ourselves about university education, especially for student athletes. So the whole question is, first and foremost, do athletes even know? And what we have been finding is most of the time, no. There is no real holistic education program, especially designated on this particular topic. But the, the interesting aspect of that is kind of the, the flip side to this is that when athletes do know what's going on, especially with these building names, statues, et cetera, um, athletes have spoken out. So even beyond, you know, these particular facilities, especially in the last few months, uh, in 2020, athletes have really vocalized their particular thoughts on, on why we should be changing uh, a lot of these names. So athletes have organized at the University of Texas uh, to get names of buildings changed there. Athletes have organized at Texas A&M University, which is actually my alma mater. Uh, in particular, there was a statue on campus for uh, Sullivan Ross, Lawrence Sullivan Ross. He was a general, uh, excuse me, he was a Confederate general. Uh, and a lot of the athletes there have really led the way, especially the quarterback, Kellen Mond. Uh, he's been very vocal as far as trying to remove this statue of a Confederate general from campus. Now, at the same time, they're not talking about Kyle Field, you know, which is the major coliseum where they all play football, who is that particular uh, stadium was named after the son of a Confederate general. So really that legacy is kind of thrown in our face, right? This, this legacy of the Confederacy uh, is, is not just a statue. I mean, it is the entire Coliseum. It is the atmosphere uh, that these athletes, where they go to college, where they go for education. So uh, what I really think that that speaks to is kind of the permanence of racism. Uh, and that's a, a critical component of critical race theory is that, you know, racism is permanent in U.S. society. And when you look at the structures, especially in higher education, you really see how deeply embedded this legacy is. So one of the first tasks for us, because this is a, a, a very large project and a long-term project, one of the first tasks is to really 
educate people about this topic, athletes being one of the primary groups that we need to educate. Again, especially in something like college football and men's basketball, uh, both of those sports heavily depend on black men. So these black men are going into buildings uh, and laboring for a university who has named that building after someone who would have taken action to keep them from accessing that building. Um, that's so a terrifying thought. Especially, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? And that's what we've seen, especially over the last few months is that when these athletes do understand or, or, or are educated about this particular issue, they will push back. But universities are doing a great job of kind of sweeping this under the rug. Uh, there are a lot of for lack of a better term, propaganda programs to really tell the, the virtues of these people, right? Because there is, there is this assumed virtuousness uh, that if you have a building named after you, you must have been a great person. Um, but that's, you know, that's not always the case. And these, these are the kinds of, of next steps, you know, is, is trying to figure out how to get this, this kind of data to be more accessible. Um, so, so that's, that's, definitely a great suggestion, something we, we need to look to be doing. Well, and you know, I love reading your article. I read it a couple of times and, and the theories you present within it. Um, well, like, for example, I'll just say this an anecdote. You talked about, I mentioned Nathan Bedford Forrest earlier, and there's a, an anecdote in there that talks about how Middle Tennessee University has a reserve officers training corps program that actually names its building after him or its facility after him. Of course, he was a notorious Confederate general, and he was a leader of the KKK, right? He had no connection to that university mm -hmm. at all. Yet, I then saw in your article, you talk about the city of Memphis, how it was penalized by the Tennessee, state of Tennessee legislature, and they withheld like $250,000 that they were airmarking for the city because the city decided to remove its own statutes of Nathan <laughs> Bedford Forrest and, and Jefferson Davis, who were both, as we, as we know, treasonous <laughs> and racist. So... Right. That tells you it's a larger issue. It just doesn't go to the college level. It goes further up, all the way to the state and federal level. Have you found anything right. in your research about combating that kind of resistance from the higher-ups in the government? Uh, boy, I mean, this is tough, right, because it, this really is – this is the legacy of white supremacy in the United States, right, is that it, it, yes. it's not just on this kind of micro scale. By and large, white supremacists did – uh, infiltrate mainstream politics. They did become the board of regents, board of governors, legislators, uh, things like that. So there is, there has been uh, created kind of a significant stake in this legacy of white supremacy. So it is very difficult. You run into a lot of, a lot of resistance, whether people are conscious of it or not, you run into a lot of resistance that people don't even know why they're necessarily attached to uh, you know, something named after Nathan Bedford Forrest or not. So, again, there is that assumed virtuousness. So people might go their whole lives uh, attending basketball games or football games in this building uh, or driving down a particular highway named after this person, whatever it is. They may live their whole lives um, without knowing, at least um, on the whole, what this person really did. And that's because we consistently and repeatedly miseducate our own public about this topic. Now, that, that's a difficult, a difficult thing to swallow because it's in the interest of our elite to, to miseducate us on these topics. 
uh, right? Because this is about reproducing a system that does benefit particularly elite white men. Um, so with this assumed True. virtuousness, this kind of default rightness uh, for these men, it's a very dangerous situation, uh, especially in today's context, you know, where there is widespread anti-racist protests. And ultimately, it, we've come to a reckoning. You know, it, it, is, it is time to begin to tear down these larger structures. Uh, and so now we're really seeing just kind of just how deep uh, this, this system really goes. And I think that that's scary for a lot of people. It's going to be met with a lot of resistance. Uh, but we really have to, to focus in now more than ever um, to kind of start really chipping away at this larger system. And, and that's something that's interesting as well, the socialization aspect of this and, the, and how embedded it is not only within these buildings, but within people's minds in our society, within their upbringing, mm-hmm. within their self-identity, within how they, how they view concepts and paradigms in their own lives. That's going to take the challenge I think we're going to have to, to try to, to change, to make real lasting change. It's got to challenge the, the paradigms that support these concepts. Is that a good mm-hmm. way of phrasing it, you think? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, so you take something like systemic racism, which is really what we're dealing with here. Uh, well, the white racial frame is, is kind of the primary reproducer of systemic racism. And, and what the white racial frame is, according to, to Joe Fagan, he's an anti-racist sociologist, uh, the white racial frame is really that social psychic uh, kind of worldview that, you know, it, it's not just not just stereotypes. It's much more than that. Uh, so these stereotypes that we have, especially in the white mind, these stereotypes that we have also come with historical narratives. Uh, They come with emotions. They come with a bunch of different elements with them that comprise this overall white racial frame. So everything that we're interpreting, you know, it's not just a particular person in an isolated case. Um, You know, we have this whole frame, this whole historical narrative of U.S. history, the founding fathers, patriotism, uh, and how all of this plays into kind of this white virtuousness, this anti-other, this anti, whether it's anti-black, anti-indigenous, all of these things have long been framed for hundreds of years in this country. Uh, So again, that's kind of where we derive this assumed virtuousness from is this notion of the white racial frame. And that's a really helpful tool in this situation for kind of naming, understanding, and trying to get us to a point of deframing this kind of problem, right? So that's that's one of the first things we're going to run up to, especially when trying to make changes, is this white racial frame. And that's why people respond so viscerally to this issue is because this is deeply embedded not just in our social structures, but in our, in our mind, in our psyche. It's really tough to change, but that's definitely something we're running into. Um, so we just have to also figure out how to reframe uh, a lot of these issues, especially to try to change the framing of white people. It's, it's actually literally learning how, relearning how to approach concepts in your mind and, and trying to challenge yourself from within to 
hopefully dispel of old stereotypes and understandings and replace them with a more updated, inclusive perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how to best phrase that. That's just my own individual understanding. But when you're dealing with societal institutions that are going to fight you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a pretty intense experience for us to change these things. Do you expect there's going to be a lot of retaliation or, or, or resistance in our society as we, we attempt to, to grapple the issue, for example, in our sports with these stadiums? Like, what, what do you think is going to happen when, when we try to really push this and, and get them to change? The names of these stadiums. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I absolutely think we're going to continue to run into more resistance. Um, so especially what we found out, you know, in the last few months is white people love their comfort. Uh, so that we will do almost anything to maintain this sense of security. Um, so I've talked about this with several colleagues, but if you really had to sum up this idea of whiteness, whiteness is security. Uh, and a lot of people don't really get that kind of security, but white, whites in particular will cling to the security. And that's where you get uh, Robin D'Angelo's notion of, of white fragility, right? So whenever you almost threaten the security or you do anything that is perceived as a threat to the security, uh, we, we will lash out. Uh, we will kind of start doing irrational things uh, because we're trying to cling to this idea. That, that's all it really is, is an idea uh, in our head. But that's very difficult because we don't really know what it even looks like to actually be, you know, an, an equitable and inclusive society. We don't have that. We never really have in the United States. Um, so, so that's, that's a very difficult project in itself is getting white people to understand that this vulnerability in this, in this moment is actually a good thing. That that's actually the most productive thing we can be doing is tearing down our notion of security and then collectively building, you know, something together, something more, much more equitable, something built on empathy. Uh, so that, that's, that's very difficult for a lot of white people to grapple with. You know, interesting, as you say, the word security growing up, I'm in my 40s right now. Growing up, I think of the word the American dream. We all were indoctrinated <laughs> into the glories of the American dream, the picket white fence post-World War II. Where everyone had, you know, 2.1, 2.5 children and a dog and mom stayed home and like kind of like, you know, what I believe certain people want us to go back to with making America great again. <laughs> but mm-hmm. my, my personal theory on that is the uh, American dream, unfortunately, failed in, in including everyone in our society. And that's what relearning is going to require, you know, even members of, of, our, of our white society is going to have to really take ownership and, and accountability for the past and be able to hopefully move forward with a more I would say inclusive perspective, and that may change in generation. Mm-hmm. That's like a generational change, I think, over time. Have you mm-hmm. have you actually um, inter- have you have you received any resistance since this article actually was released by anyone from the other side that's really vehement against this or anything like that? And if so, what type of response have you have you seen from others in the you know, yeah. university world and those kind of things? Um, so, so we we have seen the whole gambit, <laughs> if you will, uh, of a, of a response okay. to this. Like, like I said, this is a very visceral moment 
for a lot of people, for, for better or for worse. Um, so we, we've, you know, we've received positive feedback, especially in our in our circles. We've received positive feedback just because this is uh, this is a project that needs to be done. It needs to be talked about. We have also received pushback. Um, so a lot of these athletic departments aren't. They're not happy with us right now um, because we have tainted uh, their, you know, their their legacy. A lot of fans are, are not happy right now. So especially when it comes to sport, fans kind of have this evangelistic belief in sport, right? That that sport itself is somehow apolitical, uh, that it is inherently good. And then it, it works fine as it is, so that it doesn't need to be uh, curated, that it doesn't need to be critically examined, anything like that. So, for example, uh, like I said, we, we named Kyle Field at Texas A&M University. Uh, well, they have a, a fan site that's not affiliated with the university there called texags.com. And on this fan site, uh, there are several forums where people started talking about our uh, article. So someone got a hold of it and posted it on there. And, uh, you know, similar to a lot of online spaces in general, this particular forum kind of becomes this conservative white male leaning forum. Um, so really, mm -hmm. if you try to post anything progressive in there, uh, even if it's still pro Texas A&M, it doesn't matter because they do not want progressive views there. Um, so, of course, they immediately interpret this as an attack on everything Texas A&M, uh, which, which isn't the case, you know, because we're, all we're doing is saying that we need to start asking ourselves how we really grapple with this legacy. So for Texas A&M specifically, how do we grapple with the legacy of the Confederacy, which is already what is the larger campus conversation going on right now. So there have been protests, you know, all over that campus. Athletes have been involved, quote unquote, old ags have been uh, involved in counter protests where people have tried to drown out Black Lives Matter chants with different uh, Aggie chants and Aggie Lives Matter, Maroon Lives Matter, you know, and this thing. Um, so we really are kind of seeing people, yeah, attach themselves to these traditional narratives uh, and use those as kind of a platform to to really fight back against the Black Lives Matter movement, to fight back against progressive change generally, uh, and, and what that what that equitable future might actually look like. So it, it does get very difficult, especially in the space of sport where fans are so attached to what already is. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, it, and I, I'm going to tell you this. I actually participated in several protests last month for Black Lives Matter supporting it. And I, we came across, they're all peaceful protests, the ones I did, came across people who did the Blue Lives Matter protests. And, and it's kind of a similar concept, I believe, to drown out the protests and make it insignificant and try to downplay its, its importance by bringing up mm -hmm. your own, <laughs> your own uh, distractions. I, I'm looking at table one from your article. It's entitled Facilities Named After Honorees, a Questionable Racist Path. And a couple of things mm -hmm. I'm looking at. One, most of the schools 
from my approach, I'm from New Jersey originally. A lot of the schools, except for several of them, are from like mostly from the South, except for like Boston College, mm-hmm. and it looks like a couple, Oregon, a few of those other ones. I wanted to ask you. I know we can't get into all 18, but let's say I'll just pick one off here, like the University of Kentucky, Rupp Arena, Adolph Rupp, and you have to identify racism mm-hmm. towards student athletes. I um I pulled that guy, uh, Mr. Rupp, Rupp's background, and I came across the fact that he allegedly had threatened uh, a black athlete, I believe, <laughs> um, in, in the past. I don't know if you have anything about his background that you can see that's questionable in terms of his own individual background for UK, for example, why that school should rename its facility away from his name. Yes, um, yeah, so there is, now, now while this is kind of a nationwide issue, uh, and, and there's certainly, mm-hmm. like you, you noted, you know, Oregon, Boston, um, there is sort of a concentration in what is traditionally known as the South. Uh, and this That's is, too. again, beyond, uh, beyond sports, you know, you see this with the construction of Confederate statues uh, and other buildings named after these kinds of people and even the legacies today. Um, so it, it, it's not an accident. I, I don't think it's an accident, at least that, that you do see this concentration here because, uh, this is where white supremacy, at least this kind of explicit, uh, vitriol kind of, rel- uh, flourishes or fl- has flourished in the past and flourishes today. Um, so certainly there are probably deeper issues at the University of Kentucky that are relating uh, to this problem of white supremacy. So it's, it's not going to be, you know, just, right? So it's not going to be if you, if you rename that arena, uh, did you resolve systemic racism at the University of Kentucky? Probably not. Uh, you can kind of, you can guarantee not because there is this larger, much deeper entrenched legacy of racism especially throughout the South, that we have yet to really grapple with as a nation. Um, so you really see that also even in something like the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, right, which Kentucky is in, uh, you kind mm-hmm. of even see this, this conference quasi-nationalism uh, with these power conferences, but especially with the SEC, which represents a lot of these quote unquote, Southern states, uh, where you will constantly, you know, the, the famous thing on TV or something like that in an ad is there will always be a big chant, you know, in the background, SEC, SEC, SEC. Uh, and it's kind of used very similarly to these chants now that are being used to drown out progressive movements and things like that. It's certainly not without context, right? So there is this larger context of this kind of nationalist, tribalist view in the South and this whole idea of the South will rise again and the Confederate identity and the Confederate flag even, uh, which somehow is still a, it's still a controversial issue. I don't know why this is necessarily a controversy. But, you know, it it is today. And so that's where you see it mostly. So I I live in North Carolina now, and I see Confederate flags, you know, everywhere. Actually, the 
the town that I live in, I recently went to a Black Lives Matter protest there, and uh, we started at the county courthouse there, uh, which actually has a large statue dedicated to the Confederacy. So it, it says on, on the plaque on the statue, uh, to our heroes of the Confederacy. Hmm. Which is interesting because Western North Carolina itself, where I live, uh, was a very split area. So there was actually a lot of support for the Union in this particular area. So even this retelling of history as if all of the South was, you know, in support of the Confederacy and, and seceding from, from the Union, uh, even that's not entirely true, but it's just part of this retelling of history this white racial framing of history, right? Um, so it, it's a very difficult thing to try to disentangle. But certainly, I mean, Rupp Arena would be a start. But then all that should do is lead to larger questions about, about something like the University of Kentucky. Um, are they an equitable space? You know, are we actually valuing the voices of, you know, Black, Indigenous, Hispanic uh, population, how are we valuing those voices? What does that look like? Are we actually uh, changing or are we just kind of moving towards this notion of inclusion? Because even with inclusion, you know, there's the whole idea of, well, who is being included and what are they being included into? And then who is doing the including? So these are kind of fundamental questions that we really have to grapple with. Uh, you know, when we're thinking about restructuring. Um, so how can we actually restructure these kinds of, of systems? What does that look like? And, uh, you know, to, to use a, a Hamilton reference, who is in the room when that happens? Uh, so that, that, that's kind of a big aspect, especially with these sport facilities. Are we talking to athletes? about this? Or is this just mostly white male administrators? Uh, are we talking to community members who have been there for decades? Or is this just white male administrators? Um, so those, those are fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves, even when trying to grapple with this topic is, you know, who's involved in making this decision and why? Also, you know, you have the, I know in your article, you talk about counter argument from those trying to preserve these buildings and these names is we don't want to remove the names of these people because doing so would downplay or hide the history of racial inequality in the United States. It's like a reverse argument that doesn't make any <laughs> sense to me at all. Yeah. It, it's a, what we call in the legal field a nonsense argument. <laughs> has no basis. As if we were teaching the whole history to begin with, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and you're looking at this in Southern Pottery Law Center. You made a reference to that in your article. There's like 1,500 Confederate symbols throughout the United States. And mm -hmm. when you're looking at that, 10% of those were, you know, desecrate or were created and established in the 1950s and 60s in the South in response to the Civil Rights Movement. And several of them even started since 2000. So you have this deep, mm -hmm. entrenched, negative, I'll call them negative feelings, and you just have this entrenched mindset. I think one of the things you called it was a strong symbol of Southern heritage and Confederate identity that has to be reckoned with in order for real change mm -hmm. to occur in our, in our, in our sports facilities and in our, in our sports community. Is that something that you would, 
determine would be one of the biggest challenges is dealing with the, the deep entrenched, you know, negative viewpoints against us making changes that are necessary at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you noticed, or, or like you noted, you know, this is this is an active process. So it's not just that, you know, that these statues exist, there are still committees even right now as we're talking, thinking about how can we build more? Uh, so this is, is very difficult and they're the ones that are in closed rooms right now. Uh, so, so how do we not only get access to those rooms, but change that discussion? Uh, because this is part of a, you know, an ongoing propaganda project at large, uh, that really legitimizes this legacy. Uh, it really kind of evangelizes the racial history of the United States, which goes well beyond the Confederacy. You know, this isn't to say that the Union was, uh, you know, kind of the righteous one there. Uh, you know, there's just a different brand of racism. But if you talk to black indigenous or other people of color you know it, it might as well have been the same this is something even even beyond you know this kind of active process in the south that we need to understand what this legacy of rationalizing and legitimizing white men in particular powerful white men uh, what, what does this do to our society and how does this undernourish us uh, especially from an educational standpoint, you know, when we're driving on highways named after Robert E. Lee, uh, which I did this weekend, two two highways actually named after Robert E. Lee. Wow. Um, so, those are both huh. in, in Virginia. So, so how do we really grapple this legacy and turn the page? Because this is, it's holding us back from really moving forward and becoming the country that we think we have been and that we really know we could be kind of how I see that is it's it's a major hindrance to our progress as a people and as a country. Framers within the context of this argument, you look at Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, other presidents who had slaves and didn't necessarily free their slaves. And you can't sugarcoat the history when you look at the unvarnished history, not the one that's gloated over and included in our textbooks or you know, part of our historical understanding, when you actually look at this and you've got to critically evaluate it, that's going to take a lot of effort in our society's yeah. part. And sometimes I fear, when I think of the United States right now, I think of an adolescent who's an underachiever. They know they should do better, but they just don't. So my question <laughs> to you would be, what can we, what, what steps can we take? We have this really great article we're discussing right now. We're talking about racism in, in collegiate sports and how we have buildings named after racists who have clear racist past and that we still have segments of our society that's resisting us. The question would be mm -hmm. at what, what do we go, what do we do next? What, and I know you kind of bring that up, what can and should be done, but I want to ask you for purpose of our audience, we're talking about these topics. What, I mean, what can really be done at this point to make real change right. in your opinion? And I, I, I like that word that you used of us kind of being adolescent about this topic. Yeah. Um, I, a lot of times I, I liken white people at large to being infantile when it comes to this notion <laughs> of race, uh, that we are essentially babies, yet we have power. <laughs> we have power and authority. I mean, you see that all the way up to, you know, the highest seat in the nation right now. 
the biggest baby um, in charge. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, the biggest baby. So one of the things that would really help, I think, in, in this next step, uh, and, and we're not far from it, we just really need to keep pushing and keep the pressure on, is we need institutional support. Uh, you know, and, and we've, we've gotten a little bit of this here and there, but we need some of these universities to start saying, yes, we will move into the future with you. Uh, and so that way, because they, they have, you know, the fan bases, all of these people that are resistant to change, coincidentally, are major sport fans, because sport does provide this kind of mental safe haven uh, that people believe, you know, it's an escape from politics and things like that. Um, so we need some of these athletic programs in particular, not just the universities, but athletic programs to start saying, you know, Yes, like we, we value our players, where they come from, their histories, uh, and we are going to be better moving forward, you know. So, so they could start doing educational-type programs, and this could even fit, you know, with their ongoing practices as far as it, if you really want, it can be a part of your social media strategy, you know, and you can kind of start this whole new kind of education, progressive moving forward. Uh, and really build it into the mission. So I even, again, kind of building on the, the example of Texas A&M University, which, again, is, is where I did my degrees, um, you know, I think that their, their big slogan right now is fearless on every front. Well, here you go. You have, you, you have this front, you know, right there in front of you, uh, and it's going to be a difficult journey. So how do you show that you're fearless on this front? You take it head on. Now, obviously, there's the fear of losing donors and, and losing out on a lot of different money sources and things like that. But if that's the case, I mean, people are going to see through this facade very quickly, and you're going to lose more than a few disgruntled old, mostly white men. I, I think that universities and programs can even kind of turn this into a dance where they can dance with the moment. Uh, and we've seen that with some. Very few organizations have been willing to uh, come out and, and really, you know, really be almost become part of the movement. Uh, but, but that's essentially, I, I, I think, the, the direction that these athletic programs have to take. You know, interestingly enough, look at the NFL, right? Look at the, the Redskins. Look how their name's being changed now with the, the team. After, I believe, you had corporate America start FedEx, made a big big stink about it with other donors. And finally that has become a change in the right direction, at least in my opinion. Do you think that if we find the, the, the actual purse, purse, you know, the wallet strings, the purse strings to, to the college sports, if, if the people who support that stuff financially start making a, the alumni base, or if you find donors, you think that that might mm -hmm. change the university's, opinions pretty quickly? Uh, I mean, yes, <laughs> in, in the sense that, you know, money is what talks uh, for these athletic yeah. departments. We're even seeing that now with, with COVID-19 and the, in the very nearing start of the fall semester where college football is still in a very precarious place. Um, a lot of people are finally starting to shut down their programs. Um, 
but clearly money is the driving factor here, especially in Power Five conferences and definitely in something like the Southeastern Conference. Um, it, it's, a, it's a complicated kind of situation though, right? Even understanding this idea of sponsors and donors. Um, so even using the Washington football team, like you just mentioned, uh, right, like FedEx was one of the big ones that came out and said, you know, if they don't change the name, they're going to pull their sponsorship. Well, interestingly enough, the founder and CEO of FedEx is a minority owner of the Washington football team. You know, so if, hmm. if FedEx felt so strongly about this, why did the owner not do anything before that? Um, and obviously, question. we all know, <laughs> we know, of, we know of Dan Snyder. Uh, the most because he's the majority owner, but but why did Fred Smith not say anything? Uh, why did Fed? Great why point. was FedEx complicit in this for so many years? Why has that team played at FedEx Field for so many years? Um, so, you know, even then, there's kind of a a delicate power play, uh, you know, on on the behalf of the elite. There, it's almost this notion of internal investigations, right? Um, yeah. where, where the, these, these people say, fine, we will take a look, uh, and, and ultimately they come out with their own change, even if they decide to make a change. Uh, so now all of a sudden, you know, like FedEx got some positive publicity out of that, which is still good for the Washington football team, either way, even as they're making money through this, this name change process. So, right. and Instead of them trying to co-opt it, too, they shouldn't co-opt the issue. They should embrace it. <laughs> right. And so that, that's a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a delicate topic. I, I, part of it is just kind of the reality of the system at large. So certainly we have to find ways to pressure these donors, pressure these sponsors into, you know, making these kinds of statements. Uh, because especially now, you really don't want to be affiliated with these brands that are going to be stuck in the past. If you don't have the capacity to change, you're not going to survive very long. Uh, and that, that's something that we need to, to keep the pressure on about. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we're doing a better, a better job with that. Uh, but certainly we need to, to keep that energy moving forward in, in for the, at least the foreseeable future. From this article that you were involved in, in this project you were involved in, what would be the most important aspect for our audience to understand the t as a takeaway from your involvement with this and, and being on this episode today, what would be the most important thing you would advise our audience to take away from our discussion of this topic with the sports teams and the collegiate athletic facilities and looking at the namesakes and <laughs> what would you, what would you want our audience to take from this discussion as one of the most important aspects of it? Well, if I had to boil it down to one takeaway, <laughs> I would, hard, you I know, know, I, I would, yeah. Um, get rid of racism? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I would say the one takeaway is have these conversations. This is a very difficult topic to grapple with. The, the history of our country is a very difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. But we need to have these conversations openly, vulnerably, and we need to be able to reflect on these conversations, make changes, and be better. Uh, but that all starts with the openness to have these conversations. You know, so 
especially in the past and, and, and really, you know, before the Black Lives Matter movement, at least in like the couple decades before, there was like a very, a very widespread stagnation and quietness when it came to public discussion about, about racism. Um, you know, following the civil rights movement and then kind of after the 70s, things kind of quieted down in the 80s and 90s uh, and even early 2000s. So Dr. Harry Edwards, he, he, especially in the context of sport, he kind of refers to this area or this time as a time of stagnation for black athlete activists. Uh, but really, it's because there was no larger movement to attach to. So now, you know, we have a powerfully framed movement in Black Lives Matter. And that's what you're seeing a lot of athletes really attach to uh, and kind of be a part of, especially, I mean, you look at women athletes in like the WNBA, they have been at the forefront um, of this kind of activism, especially tied to Black Lives Matter. Um, but that kind of larger movement helps frame this activism. It helps give context for this activism so that a larger conversation can take place. So our duty, especially, you know, if we are white or, um, or otherwise, maybe we don't talk about racism all the time, our duty is to meet this head on and talk about it all the time. That's the only way that we can kind of reconcile this deep kind of twisted malnourishment that we've had for 400 years. Uh, we, we just, we have to address it and we have to do that as a community, whether that's locally, regionally, statewide, nationwide, whatever it is, we need to be having these conversations. Uh, so that's the the number one takeaway, you know, that I would give for for everyone, for, for your listeners is uh, keep going, keep having these conversations, keep listening. You know, conversations are two-way, uh, if not three-way, four-way, five-way. We need this to be a very multi-pronged conversation where all voices are being heard. Uh, and that, that's what has not happened in the past, but that's the only solution for moving forward. Interesting point. I've had people ask me about my show, why I've expanded it to include these topics. And I feel like, why wouldn't I? <laughs> I just make it as simple <laughs> as possible. Why not? Why wouldn't we have this conversation on this show? Why not? It's a platform. Let everyone hear what we're discussing so that they can kind of go from there. For audience, if people were to, 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 to look for you or want to you know, reach out to you, how would they find you? What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, email <laughs> would be the best way to reach out to me. Um, it's a okay. busy time right now as we're as we're getting ready for the fall semester. But they can always sure. email me. That that should be available online. You know, if you just Google, okay. Google my name, you could certainly find uh, my contact information. Um, I'm so, gonna yeah, that the... my name Anthony Weems. So. Great. And I want to I want to let you know um your article within the program notes so people can access that and see the article firsthand. I okay. Um, also wanted to mention Joe Fagan before we get off this interview with each other. I know we talked about him during our private conversation and it was, it, it seems really interesting that he was somebody you studied under. And I just wanted to see if you could just bring him up briefly in terms of your own personal mentoring relationship with him and how he's helped influence your position where you are in, in your career on this topic. Cause it sounds like he had mm -hmm. some, some role in that. Yes. Uh, yeah. So Joe has had a huge impact on me, you know, not, not just 
topically, uh, but I think holistically. Um, so, you know, when I, when I, when I think of Joe, I think of kind of the wise sages of old. So as for him being someone who has been in this, this anti-racist movement for, I mean, his entire career has been dedicated to fighting racism. Um, and now he's at, you know, the end of his career, he has a lot of wisdom uh, that he has gained from this fight, especially as uh, a white person who has been very anti-racist his entire career. So when I met him, I really kind of gravitated to him. So we actually wrote a, a, I was just a contributing author, but there was a book edited by Ruth Thompson Miller and Kimberly Ducey called Systemic Racism, Making Liberty, Justice, and Democracy Real. And in this book, a bunch of kind of former mentees of Joe both wrote on, you know, the impact that Joe had on us, as well as uh, actually applying, you know, this, this idea of systemic racism, this theory, to our different disciplines. So within that, that book, you know, people are looking at media, sport, uh, and just kind of all this, these different facets uh, of U.S. society really kind of unpacking this notion of systemic racism. Um, but in that book, even early on, there's kind of this notion that I think we all fell for, and, and I mean that in, in the best way, called the Fagan mystique. Uh, so there is, there's always kind of something warm and comforting when you, when you really connect with Joe and when you really see how much he cares. Uh, he cares more than a lot of people I, I've met uh, in, in my life. He really, really cares, obviously, about this larger fight, this anti-racist fight. Um, he cares about the people who have been fighting this fight. He cares about anyone who is just thinking about joining this fight. He cares about you, even if you don't want to be a part of this fight. And so really kind of, you know, being under his mentorship, you know, it, he wasn't just a topical mentor or he isn't just a topical mentor. Uh, he's been something much more really helping me grapple with the difficulties of this path in life. Um, so so we, we talk quite often. Um, you know, and I'll just pick his brain on a bunch of these different uh, aspects related to this topic. You know, how do you deal with resistance? Um, how do you build social support um, in these networks? Because this work can be very isolating, um, especially in a largely white racist society. Um, kind of the norm is to, to isolate uh, this kind of resistance. Um, so it's it's really about building these social ties, these strong networks, and working together because ultimately we're not alone, and no one ever is in that. You know, no matter how alone they may feel uh, when when fighting against racism, uh, we we can be connected, and and that's something that Joe really does a good job of imparting, and has really imparted to me. And so uh, you know for. Anyone you know that's listening out there, I think that that's a big aspect of it. Is really finding where uh, that connection is for you. So, yeah. So Joe's been a, a huge influence on me, my career, uh, and just kind of my 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 development as a holistic human being. Uh, right. So he's really kind of helped facilitate you know my 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 social views, but also my 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 spiritual development uh, as a human that's navigating great. this kind of difficult context.
That's phenomenal. He sounds an amazing individual, someone I think we should celebrate for his contribution to this area. You brought up a, an interesting mm-hmm. point when you said spiritual development with this stuff. What's your take on that? The spiritual concepts involved with this or the backing to it? Because I have my own viewpoints mm-hmm. on that as well. I believe there's a spiritual component to this that's critical for all of us to recognize and understand. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, boiling it down, that's, that's what it all comes down to. Um, you know, we, we talk often, you know, about race as a social construct. Uh, and that's largely because a lot of us are sociologists that do this work. Um, so we have to kind of use the terminology that is accepted in our field um, to be able to have these conversations professionally. But by and large, um, as far as me personally, I interpret race as a whole as as spirituality. Uh, so race just isn't, you know, related to spirituality. I think that race isn't entirely is spirituality. I agree. Um, so, so especially for us, you know, in a in a racist system, it is kind of this. Um, we're really devoid of this of this connection of how to spiritually connect both with each other and with, you know, whatever you may call that source, God, um, whatever that might be. Racism is part of this broader, you know, spiritual problem that, that prevents us uh, from, from making those connections. So I think that that's, that's kind of a, a part of it for me is this is all part of both personally and systemically, this is part of a spiritual reconciliation. Uh, so that, that's how we really come to understand, you know, the sins of our past and the sins of ourselves uh, is through this kind of holistic engagement with this topic of race and racism. I agree a hundred percent. I think that's, that's actually uh, the best encapsulation I could have asked for in terms of that question. So I appreciate it. You really framed that the right way. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know there's so many other things we could talk about with this topic. I, you have a wealth of experience. I'd love to get your opinions on a future episode regarding the NFL with this topic or how you view, you know, I, I, I just feel like you have a, a wealth and a reservoir of a lot of information about this particular area of, you know, eradicating racism in our society one step at a time, one brick at a time, so to speak, no pun intended to our structures and whatnot, <laughs> but it really is a big, big process, like roots to a big tree. We got to address every aspect. Uh, do you have any, any concluding remarks or anything else you want to add? I just want to make sure I give you the full opportunity to share, you know, if you have anything else you want to share with our audience, because I really appreciate you taking time to come on today. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me. Um, you're kind of piggybacking off of what you were just saying. You know, but both you and whoever's listening, you know, keep keep going. We're just getting started. <laughs> uh, I, I know that people are people are exhausted. It's been uh, a very hectic last few months, both with COVID and with uh, racism and anti-racism more broadly. Protests and trying to kind of fight these battles, you know, within our social networks, our familial networks. Uh, but keep going, you know, so this, this is a very, this is an intergenerational struggle, uh, but there is meaning in that struggle. Uh, so we may not get it in our lifetime, 
but we will make an impact. Uh, so, so that's that's kind of the the imparting piece. You know, if I if I had to to give one, it's just keep going. I I deeply appreciate your work and your moral courage and and, and your colleagues' courage in putting this out here and really advocating for this stuff because it is that critical and important where we are right now and where we're headed. Mm-hmm. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your views and presenting your information for us. Absolutely. Thank you. And, uh, and keep going on your end, too. Thank you so much, Dr. Wiens. I appreciate you. <laughs> All right. You have a good day. Bye-bye. Take care. I, uh, I just want to thank Dr. Wiens for coming on the show from Western Carolina University. Looking at this topic, you know, changing the names of our stadiums and our campus buildings, for example, for collegiate sports. There's 12 of these structures in the college football that were identified, and there were several basketball facilities, to name a few. When I look at this, um, I, I have, everybody has their own viewpoint. You know, yeah, I understand history can be important, and one's heritage and one's background needs to be respected. But None of that's in a vacuum. There's anything that's changed since George Floyd's death and all the protests that have resulted from that, it is to say enough is enough. Now is the time. Some strides have been made with Bubba Wallace, with NASCAR, and you know, these other things that we could we could point to. You know, Aunt Jemima no longer being our syrup, or some of these other things, but those are just small steps. Real action and real change is going to start from within. And that's going to require each of us to work together and really help each other through this as a society. Because there's going to be a lot of resistance. It's going to get very personal pretty quickly with people when they start thinking you're trying to change their history and their heritage and those things that they consider dear for their identity. When you have systemic racism and it exists all around us, with redlining, it exists in our government, it exists in our criminal justice system, it exists in all facets of our society. This is like one branch to a tree. When you deal with these issues, it's important to take your preconceived notions and leave it at the door. The only way we're gonna have constructive real dialogue on this kind of thing is by checking your individual viewpoints at the door and having an open mind. To be able to really grasp these issues, Many of us have an educator in our, in our lifetime, in our background, that was this incredible educator, someone that really left an impact on you. And I feel very strongly that someone like Dr. Weems is one of those people, someone who lives by what they believe and, and takes action to advocate. And it, it's great to have these, these heroes in our society who, who stand out and will leave a mark as trailblazers to continue these type of challenges to our systemic racism and things that exist in our society. Southern Pottery Law Center has identified 1,500 Confederate symbols throughout the United States. That's a pretty big feat. We can start with the focus of this particular show and say we need to change these 18 identified facilities as brought by Dr. Weems and his colleagues. Out of these 18, Kansas University, Allen Fieldhouse, University of Alabama, Bryant-Denny Stadium, University of Alabama, Thomas Drew Practice Field, Auburn University, Pat Dye Field, University of Missouri, Forest Field, University of Oklahoma, 
Gaylord Family Oklahoma Memorial Stadium, Oregon State University, Gill Coliseum, Texas A&M, as was brought up during our interview today, Kyle Field, Purdue University, McKay Arena, Southern Methodist University, Moody Coliseum, the University of Tennessee, Nyland Stadium, University of Florida, Stephen C. O'Connell Center, University of Connecticut, Pratt and Whitney Stadium, the University of North Carolina, Jerry Richardson Stadium, that's in Charlotte, by the way, the University of Texas, the Darrell K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium, the University of Kentucky, as was brought up during our interview, Rupp Arena, the University of Mississippi, Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, and Boston College, Yaki Athletic Center. Those are the 18 that are listed in this chart, in this article, which I definitely can should say to each of us who are interested in this topic in our audience, I'm going to include the article as part of the, the program notes so you can pull it up and look at it. This article, who are we honoring? Extending the Ebony and Ivy discussion includes sports facilities, written by Robert Turek, Ball State University, Anthony Weens, Western Carolina University, Nicholas Swim, University of Louisville, Trevor Bopp, University of Florida, and John N. Singer, Texas A&M University. It appears in the Journal of Sports Management. And I just wanna really thank Dr. Weems, as I said previously, for coming on the show. This topic to me is very important because I think when you walk into a stadium, when you're, you're, you're championing your team, you wanna walk into a stadium that represents what you believe. The general concepts of equality and justice under the law, not racism and white supremacy. And that's what that heart of these issues is looking at the individuals whose namesake are on these buildings and chartering their past to see if they do in fact harbor racist views or have acted in a racist manner during their lifetime, those individuals should not be on these facilities as namesake. That's the pivotal aspect of this entire episode and of this entire topic. Those names need to change, but the bigger picture is we must have dialogue with all parties involved, university administrators, alumni, teams, athletes, coaches, support staff, everybody, fans, this is pivotal. I wanna ask your opinion on this. If you have an opinion as to why these stadiums should not change their namesakes to reflect individuals with racist backgrounds and racist actions, like Nathan Bedford Forrest, I would say, Really look at your viewpoint, and I don't see anything that justifies keeping these things in place other than to try to legitimize the history of these individuals in our, in our system. And I think that that's just foul and of where we are now today in light of everything that's taken place with this pandemic and the social unrest and social justice. When you look at these things from the context of the 1960s and the civil rights movement and Jim Crow and segregation and slavery and the Civil War, it goes far back to the very core of who we are as a country. Now is the time to take this and move it to the next mark and hopefully eradicate any vestiges of this history in our society. We don't want our young athletes going into stadiums that serve these memories of inequality. We really need to change things. So that's my point in terms of the show today. I'm so pleased to have our topic by Dr. Weems presented. Who are we honoring? Extending the Ebony and Ivy discussion to include sports facilities. It's part of the program notes. 
check it out, look it up. If you go to one of these schools that I identified, look up the individuals that are named on those facilities. If you have some questions about a building or a street name or a park or a statue, look up these people. You can very easily Google their name and you could see the unvarnished history of what they represent. I thank everyone for tuning into this episode. There will be more like this in the future. It's time to have these dialogue occur and continue by talking and sharing ideas. We can truly make a difference one step at a time. Thank you so much, Dr. Weems. I appreciate you for coming on. And thank you so much for everyone who's tuned into this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the shit? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hour. Electric acid.